My name is Dr. Anwar Osborne. And I'm Dr. Matthew Wheatley. And this is Pobscast. This week we get to sit down with Dr. Steve Pitts, who's one of the forefathers and one of the most important folks in the history of emergency medicine here at Grady. And he's a pretty humble guy, but if you ever want to get the inside story of how it all started here at our big academic center in Atlanta, uh, you just got to buy this guy a beer and really just let him talk. Yeah, Dr. Pitts is one of the uh, forefathers of Emory Emergency Medicine, has been at Grady, uh, was a resident at Grady in the 80s, uh, and has practiced most of his career uh, both at Grady and at Emory Midtown, formerly known as Emory Crawford Long. Um, so he is definitely somebody we in our department look to uh, for kind of the long view of where emergency medicine has come over the last few decades, uh, kind of give some perspective into uh, where we're at right now. Right. He's basically at as far as emergency medicine is concerned, pretty much worn all the hats, right? He uh, was involved in the education at, at some point. He spent a lot of time doing service. And so what we're gonna kind of talk to him today about is all the stuff he did with observation units. So like there was a observation unit that was kind of away from the ER at one point. He's gonna tell us about that. And then he'll kind of tell us about his journey to the larger ops unit that we're all kind of familiar with now. So. Uh, it's going to be a pretty interesting show. Uh, we got any housekeeping issues, Matt? Yeah, a couple things to point out. One, uh, the SAEM meeting in Orlando, Florida in May. Um, we will have some details out soon about when the observation medicine interest group meeting is. Uh, I feel like SAEM was maybe a little bit behind where they have been in past years. I just got the survey asking me what dates I would like so for the meeting, so I, I haven't gotten the official word on that. Are you driving down there or are you flying? Uh, I don't know yet. <laughs> it's Orlando. I already gave the mouse enough of my money. <laughs> Not getting, no more. No more. Uh, uh, and then we've got the, what is this, the fourth or fifth annual uh, MSEP OBS conference. I think this is the fifth. Okay. And when's that? That is going to be in September. I believe the dates are the 18th and 19th. And uh, this year we're going back to Nashville, so we're keeping it in the South. Uh, it's not my hometown; can't have it there every, every year anyway. But uh, I like Nashville, uh, and we had a great time there. Unfortunately, it rained. Uh, however, I think our luck is going to turn this year. It's going to be pretty nice weather. Yeah, let's hope so. Uh, yeah, it was a good town, and uh, we got out on the uh, main drag Broadway there. Went, went to a couple yeah. honky tonks, I guess. Uh, did you go to the Grand Ole Opry? I went to the Grand Ole Opry. You it was went to the cool. Grand Ole Opry. Yeah, uh, yeah. I had to. I did. I had to drive home, so I, I didn't get to do that. Oh yeah, no. I spent a couple days there. It's great, and I'm not really a country music fan, but uh, it was a pretty awesome show that I saw. So. Uh, again, so kind of mark your calendars for this Thursday and Friday in September. It's going to be a good time. Uh, we're kind of updating the the lineup to reflect more of the changing dynamics of the people that show up there, i.e. we got the feedback, and <laughs> we're going to try to make it a little bit more cutting edge. So uh, look for some talks about how to really step up your diabetes game in the observation unit. And uh, over at Grady here, we got a couple of uh, uh, pretty awesome things going on, like with the TBI, which I'm sure you're going to talk about, and then the minor stroke. So, yeah. 
It should be good. Uh, we're also, I think, going to do more split track stuff on both days and try to really give folks, uh, you try to hit people where they're at. If it's, you know, if you're starting a unit, stuff more geared towards those people. And if you are, have had a unit and looking to grow it, um, you know, maybe not so much the foundational stuff, more, more kind of next level stuff. So, um, so yeah, uh, if you're looking at uh, registration, if you go to the Michigan College of Emergency Medicine or MSEP website, there's an observation tab in that, and then there you, you'll see the OBS conference, and that's where you can register. Um, but hope, look forward to seeing everyone there. Awesome, awesome. So without any further ado, we'll uh, let the tape run on our meeting with Dr. Pitts, uh, just uh, full disclosure, we recorded it in the basement of my house in my shoe closet. So um, if you hear any awesomeness, that's my shoes. That's right. <laughs> All right, guys. Until uh, next time, and uh, thanks for listening. So, so Dr. Pitts is going to, uh, we really wanted to just kind of wind him up and let him talk about OBS. But uh, if you could, Dr. Pitts, could you kind of tell us how you got your start in observation and uh, what it was like, you know, in the early days when uh, there was no emer and there was no troponin and things like that? Sure. Um, I mean, it's, it's interesting to me to talk about my past because... I am old, but I'm not really an OBS expert, so <laughs> I, I can I can tell you why I got interested, because it was July the 1st, 1980, my first day of, of internship, and I had been assigned to the month-long rotation on a unit at Grady Hospital called 7A OBS. So OBS was a concept long ago, well before it um, became the thing it is now, but <clears throat> um, I think back in those days, it was viewed as a way to curtail the, uh, the all the paperwork of a regular hospital admission for these people who were viewed as relatively less sick. But it was just—I'll just say—it was a disaster. It was—it was horrible. It seemed to me like after that month, I mean, I had a great time learning, you know, where the rubber gloves were and stuff like that. It was my complete <laughs> new introduction to, to medicine uh, from being a medical student, um, and I thought that this bizarreness that we encountered was completely normal, but in retrospect, it was just a really horrible idea of putting people in this unit based on some really lumpy criteria that some individual came up with, uh, like uh, UTIs, for some reason, would go to OBS, but uh, you know from your experience in the ER that the UTIs are often really sick, especially the ones you admit, and there were any number of cardiac arrests up there, probably sepsis. So let me ask you this. Who was making the criteria at the time for these? Uh... Just some guy, whoever was handy. I mean, there was really very little. Probably Corey Slovis. If, you know, he was uh, our boss in a way. Mm -hmm. And uh, some of the other uh, internal medicine bigwigs, people who ran the residency. <clears throat> um, so was the unit run by... Internal medicine or emergency medicine, or was it just an open unit where anybody could admit folks to? Or you have to think back in time. There was no such thing as emergency medicine. That's <laughs> there a good was point. there was only medicine and there was only surgery. There was no Dana only. Zool. And there was OBGYN, <laughs> pediatrics. Uh, so uh, it was internal medicine that ran this, uh, and they thought of it as a way to make the wards more efficient because then, as now, the demand for care was overwhelming. Um, 
And it, so the OBS workup was a one-page sheet. It was a yellow sheet, I remember, and it had blanks for certain things. I think it had those little stick men figures for the electrolytes, which is all in turn is to live by. So um, that, I mean, it was a lot of fun because we saw lots of pathology very quickly. We typically have, you know, I would have personally have eight admissions, maybe more. In fact, I remember the very first day of my internship, I was told to walk up to the seventh floor and my patients would be waiting for me. And they were, all eight of them were lined up against the hall, <laughs> the wall. So, uh, and they, they ended up being, some of them quite ill. In fact, one of the things we saw a lot of was uh, alcohol withdrawal. And alcohol was a much bigger problem back in those days. You know, we, we didn't have cocaine, we didn't have meth, we just had alcohol, we had serious alcohol trouble. I mean, and you, you've probably never seen real delirium treatments, but you know, it's not DTs unless the person is out of touch with reality. They mm -hmm. have to have delirium. That's key. Right. And if you don't have delirium, it's not DTs. They can have other things like withdrawal tremulousness and stuff. But, but DTs is somebody who's shouting at the wall. Mm -hmm. And um, so we had some really sick withdrawing withdrawal patients back there, and they all got peraldehyde, <clears throat> which you could smell from down the hall. It was a stream of volatile substance that would burn a hole through an NG tube. So you had to be given orally, uh, and so, and that would put them into a coma, basically. So it was a very different way of doing OBS. It, it didn't work. Uh, I think eventually that unit was dissolved. Uh, it came back around in my consciousness in about about I don't know ten or fifteen years ago, when I heard about the new kind of OBS unit run by ER, and that that's really what piqued my interest because at that time in history I had developed another set of complaints, which was that I can't always define, you know, which patient needs to be admitted. And we were always, we were having these constant uh, uh, arguments about whether a patient should be admitted or not. And it, I really resented having to let somebody else tell me whether somebody should be admitted. So was this before the days of the Interqual manual? Uh, I think the Interqual manual was a thing by that time. I was totally unaware of it. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, the concept to me is, is crazy of a, of a manual that's so incredibly detailed but based on zero evidence and I, I wouldn't have thought about it twice. Yeah, I mean yeah. when when, uh, when we do the the OBS education one of the things that comes up is the two midnight rule and what's now the thing now is is that people don't even remember the intercom manual it took only that long for people to forget and what I tell them was or what I tell them is is that the Interqual Manual, you never heard of it in med school. However, as soon as you got out, everybody wants to tell you what to do with these patients. Right. I mean, the manual is more detailed than even my, uh, you know, medicine attending would have gone. I mean, it's, it's so much uncertainty involved in medical decision making, and it sort of ignores all that. But um, uh, so I, I viewed the OBS unit as an incredibly nice resource for putting people that I thought were not necessarily ready to go home, but. I couldn't convince anybody to admit, so it gave me an out for those troublesome patients. And I, that's, that was one of the greater, one of the benefits of, of an OBS unit. And to have it run, you know, more or less autonomously by mid-levels was a concept that we didn't have in 1980. And I, I love that. And I really, uh, really wanted to have an OBS unit. And just by random chance, it happened that the ER where I worked had a new wing. And in that new wing was a blueprint for the new ER. And in that blueprint, for reasons I don't know, was a little section called observation unit. So somebody had had the foresight to put that in the blueprint, maybe the chief of, of ER at the time. But now where was this? This is at Old Crawford or where? Yeah, this is Old Crawford Long. It was the old unit, the old ER, the old hospital was being 
renovated, and actually a new building was built right next door that included this expansive new ER. And, and so when this was being set up, how did you guys work? Who went in and who didn't? Was it essentially, I mean, were there protocols at that point or was it more just uh, kind of an order set that you would fill out and kind of click diagnosis and what you wanted done or how did, how did that work? What kind of patients were going in there at this point? Right, so that, that was the big difference between what we did and what a lot of other places did. I, mean, I, did, I do know that other hospitals in town also built themselves OBS units, and to this day, I think some of them are completely strangely run. But ours, we, we wanted to have a real OBS unit with some meat, and so I looked around to see, you know, where can I find out more about OBS units, and you'll never guess where I, <laughs> I found out a guy who knew a lot about OBS units, and that was uh, in Detroit. So. Actually, I went to visit Mike Ross, uh, who was one of the founders of OBS Medicine, along with a few other guys, uh, of the Type 1 units. <clears throat> and uh, we essentially installed his, his program at, in this new OBS unit, opened it up, had a bunch of nurses dedicated to it, had mid-levels who ran it, had a process of doing rounds in the morning. Uh, we weren't really very sophisticated about the billing, and one of the things I found out after being open for several months is that the, the finance business is so opaque because there are so many different insurers with different rules. Nobody in the, in the hospital could tell me how much we were getting paid for our patients. It was just impossible. It was too complex. And uh, I was worried that, you know, we were doing these really resource-intensive things like PET scans on practically every day we'd have several PET scans. And those things are not cheap and, and not clear where the Those things are also not useful. <laughs> well, we had a we had a PET scan advocate. We had a, one of the, the fathers of, of PET scans for you know, rubidium scans for cardio uh, for stress testing, uh, and he was happy to help us out with with that sort of thing. So, and it was a lot of fun to study the technology and all that. But the billing was far more complex than the technology. So uh, I, I didn't. I kind of, I guess I must say, I sort of backed away from that and did not want to get sucked into it. There, there are experts out there that I will never come close to, to uh, uh, being like, like, like Mike and, and folks like that. And I'm happy to let others take over, take over the reins. I know there have been some changes with the two midnight rule and various ways of trying to, uh, to make the thing make sense. But uh, it, I think of that stuff as kind of like, if you're, if you're a college student, medieval scholasticism, where, where you had to justify you know, God and stuff. And what if the religion changed next year, right? It wouldn't serve you anymore. Just like dialectical materialism and stuff like this. It's not. It's just not useful in the long term. It doesn't really talk about it. The billing the part, body. you mean? Yeah, the billing part. The billing part. The, the you're complexity right. of the way OBS is built and the way that Medicare is, is trying to make it optimal and not allow cheaters, but at the same time pay you what's fair, and then you know giving you terms like uh, clinically useful or, or necessary, which are really judgment calls. I just I just don't like getting into that stuff. Yeah, and that's, I would say, continues to be a challenge and I think has been some of the driver for the development of kind of modern observation versus inpatient, uh, inpatient stuff. So, um, so a question I had, I guess, is, you know, I think in your career you, you transitioned uh, to looking at kind of some health services research stuff uh, as, as some of your passion. And uh, where do you see... I mean, where did you see, I guess, observation medicine fitting into some of the challenges of health services, uh, and where do you see that headed? Yeah, I, I think 
Uh, so, so you're right. I mean, I, I do think that obviously the Yobbs concept uh, is is relatively new um, in in the scheme of things. So, yeah, my my interest is really in. Um, I, I got sidetracked uh, 10, 10 or fifteen years ago and quit being a regular doctor and became more of a uh, kind of a numbers person. And uh, so, um, I mean, I still I still see patients, and I, I, it's, I'm, I'm old enough to retire now, so I. I I can only say that sort of. I still see a few patients, but um, up until just a couple of years ago, I was seeing patients regularly. I was a regular practicing ER doc, and um, but I, I was wanting to know, you know, what is the role of ER medicine? What are, you know, what what's what's my career all about? I spent twenty five years doing this. What what uh, what's it look like? What I do compared to everybody else, and so I got involved in looking at. Uh, visit numbers and stuff like that <clears throat> and uh, you know it turns out that ER is phenomenally undervalued as a resource we are a huge proportion of what's usually called primary care in other words the place where a patient goes first when they get sick right. that's primary care and we do most of that I mean per doctor we see far more first contact visits than any other type of doctor we don't do histories and physicals we don't do well baby checks well, and we see that we're the we're kind of the point of contact for a healthcare system. If somebody gets, uh, I need to see an orthopedist, and they want to come at least through the Grady system, they usually come through the ER, and I think sometimes that's the case at, uh, at Emory and in Midtown as well, that, that you know, not only are we uh, performing the primary care, but we're also kind of placing folks in the system where they need to go. Yeah, so, so there are, I mean, like it or not, we have become that, we have become that, okay? And unfortunately, that conflicts with the sort of academic view of what's primary care. And there's been very little discussion about that. Um, I'd love to see more of it. I'm interested in the topic. Where does OBS fit? Well, I think of OBS as part of what emergency medicine has become. So when I started emergency medicine in 1980, it was a chaotic area. You know, nobody wanted to work in the ER. It was when I started working in the first private job I had. The chief was reputed to be an alcoholic, and probably was. Uh, the there were people on staff who could not really speak English comprehensibly. Uh, it was just it was really it was a it was part of the pit. You know, the pit was the bottom where everything falls down. If anybody upstairs wanted a Tylenol, they could just run down and ask us for it. If if you had a patient who was just too mean for your office, you could send them over to the ER. Uh, if you had accidentally perforated somebody's um, femoral vein, thinking it was an abscess, you would go to the ER. Uh, anything that was bad, you would send to the ER. And that's kind of the way the ER was viewed. And so it, that's different now how? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, uh, you know, I, I must say, it's not, not because of anything I did, but over the years, by increments, I mean, the, think of airway. Airway back then was this horrible thrash uh, where you would stick a tube in somebody's throat who was fighting you. And we'd miss half the time. It would be esophageal, but we wouldn't know because there was no pulse ox. It, we would do these unintentional esophageal intubations without even realizing it. And, uh, and there was no way to, to take a second look because the patient's still thrashing. Right. Then we got medications from anesthesia. Then we, we finally convinced or forced anesthesia to give us paralytics. <laughs> and um, it, it, with paralytics, intubation became easy. Right. And it was a whole new concept. Incrementally, the stuff we used to do is completely different now. We, right. never, we didn't notice. I mean, I'm looking up now, 30 years later, thinking, my God, think of what we used to do and how that's changed. And one of the major ingredients of what's different and how EM is a key player in the, in the, the business of medicine. 
is the OBS unit, mm -hmm. the ED run type one OBS unit, not the sort of trash can OBS unit that we used to use, mm -hmm. where you would put anything that you just didn't like. I mean, it used to be an OBS unit would be a place to put somebody where you could not make a decision, right. that sort of clinical non-decision unit. So, right. So, so you know, one of the things that uh, I've heard you kind of mentioned before is kind of changing the model of how we look at healthcare, particularly through the primary care lens and, you know, placing the ER kind of at the center of that with OBS as a integral piece of that sort of thing. Because if you think about it, a lot of the workups, you know, not so much as chest pain, but things like TIA and like new onset diabetes, these are things that people once back would go to see their primary care doctor about, right? And now they end up in the ER and admitting them is inefficient, but the OBS unit can kind of serve this need of uh, a collection of resources that can happen within 24 hours. Yeah, uh, I mean, but it's that. It's a place sort of like a, a hub where everything can be done quickly and efficiently. So, I mean, it makes sense. I, if I was a primary care doc out in the community, I don't think I'd want to do laceration repairs anymore. Mm -hmm. I would only get one a week or one every two weeks. I would lose track of the kits. I just sort of, you know, why not have all this stuff in one place? Um, You're probably not making enough for a laceration repair. Uh, you'd have four other patients you'd need to see in that time. You'd yeah, need, oh, you, you can't. Know, even though you could bill enough for it, you'd have you'd lose track. If of you're on minute sixteen with with the patient, yeah, you're it's, it's you're you're out of money. So you, yeah, you can't you can't run a primary care practice these days that way. Right. Um, so yeah, I don't have a problem with. And I think yeah, the ER can serve as a hub for efficiency. The OBS units in particular. I, I think of because I'm perhaps because I'm a weak doctor, but I, I think of <laughs> as a place to put somebody where I'm just really not sure what the heck's going on, yeah. and where I can watch them a little bit longer and conf convince myself that it's not a disaster. Hopefully, I'm not just handing doing it in order to hand this patient to somebody else to not make a decision. Yeah, so right. uh, I, I think there is a component of you know sort of medical decision making where the we're dealing with the uncertainty of a really disastrous outcome. And then there's like cellulitis where you don't really intend to make them better, but you want to know it's not a rapidly progressive right. uh, illness. Um, you know, distinguish cellulitis from, you know, fasciitis or something. So um, there are a number of ways that obviously it's a fantastic idea. What do you think, uh, where do you think the future of kind of cardiac care for OBS units is going? I think the writing is kind of on the wall for some of these low-risk rule-outs, which used to be the bread and butter. You know, a lot of these OBS units, if, if they didn't start as the trash can OBS unit, then it usually was the chest pain unit. And you would only send chest pain people there to get uh, rule-outs from biomarkers and maybe a provocative stress test. And I think uh, as we're seeing more outcomes data from stress tests, we realize that we're really not, we're really not discovering the disease we thought we were discovering. So I, I think... Uh, a, lo a lot of OBS units are going to be struggling for patients now as we see, you know, especially once we get uh, high-sensitivity troponins. You know, some of these low-risk folks will go home from the ED. I don't know. What do, you, what do you see is either taking the place of that, and what do you think it's going to take for us to finally be done with stress testing? I think stress testing, honestly, I mean, you're asking me my honest opinion. <laughs> I think stress testing is like bell-bottom pants. I, I think it's just going to go out of style. It, it's, it's not... I mean, there was never much to be gained uh, with these low-risk chest pain patients. And if you go to another, you know, perfectly civilized country like New Zealand, mm -hmm. I spent six months there. They just don't do that. <laughs> they just don't do stress testing. Period. Uh, partly because it, you know, it takes an act of Congress for them to get a 
a, un a unit dose of thallium or something sent from another town by truck. Uh, but I mean, they have the capability to do it, but they just don't. It's not part of their chest pain worker. It, when I was there brief for, for the six months I was there, the place where I worked really uh, wouldn't put somebody in the hospital unless they had a STEMI. And, and honestly, that was a lot of fun because there you didn't have this instant PCI uh, path that we have here. Mm -hmm. We we managed the STEMIs, and that, right. that was fun. We got to see the reperfusion arrhythmias and the stuff that you guys never see anymore. Right. Uh, so, uh, and yet everybody with sort of this vague chest pain that might be ischemic, and, and actually in New Zealand a lot of times it probably was ischemic. Uh, they went home? They, they would go home, and then they'd see their cardiologist, and that's the way the cardiologist wanted it, that's the way it was managed. It was just a the tradition. It really had little to do with this, this kind of uh, formal uh, threshold decision model that we use for everything. Well, the problem is now you've got regulations where one of the points on doing a cath on somebody who doesn't have a STEMI or an NSTEMI is, did they have a positive stress test? And so now cardiologists, and I think some of this is geared towards trying to level the playing field because you have some hospitals where you know you look at somebody funny and you get a calf and then you have some hospitals where if you're not dying of a STEMI you're not going to get a calf it doesn't matter how good your story is or what your risk factors are um, so I think some of it is to uh, like I said level the playing field and get some of these calf happy hospitals or doctors to not calf for inappropriate uh, inappropriate uh, decision inclusion criteria um yeah what i was trying to say that well, but the downside of that is that you have uh patients that probably need a cath as their next diagnostic step but if they don't go through this stress test sieve first uh they're not going to get the cath and then the problem is the stress test either is weakly positive or normal and it and what the studies are showing us is it has absolutely no bearing as to whether or not they've got uh, obstructive disease. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm totally with you on that. I mean, uh, it, in, in a sense, we're captives of this, uh, you know, sort of... Uh, Workup bias, I think. As, well, I'm, I'm thinking of sort of like more sort of generic, and this is sort of like the, the OBS industrial complex. It's just there's too many people, <laughs> too many people dependent on it, and we have this these traditions and customs that we, it, not just me, but there's different parts of the hospital that depend on this sort of system. And um, to all simultaneously quit doing that it would be incredibly difficult. Right. Um, you know, I was, uh, you know, one of my thoughts is that I think the thing that really saves people's lives with uh, when they don't have a STEMI but have coronary artery disease is really just the medications. Right. You give people aspirin and statin and whatnot, uh, that makes a difference. And really, like kind of how Matt was saying, is that you you really only have a couple of pathways to get there, right? So you either have a heart attack, right? Uh, or you f figure out a way to get diagnosed with coronary artery disease. And then you have the ear of somebody who's going to write you these medications. And, you know, how do you get this diagnosis of coronary artery disease without first having a heart attack, right? That is, you can't walk into an office and say, hey, you know, I want to get a calf. Like the way to get it done is to get a stress test, and maybe maybe it's positive when it should be uh, 60, 70 percent of the time, but but that 60, 70 percent of the people now have a diagnosis of coronary artery disease, and they get linked in to the medications that make a difference. Well, and I think the difference we've got now is we actually have biomarkers that are maybe in some cases too sensitive. You know, we're picking up 
now with troponin, even without ultra high sensitivity troponin, we're picking up troponin leak that isn't due to STEMI, it's due to microvascular ischemia from some other either chronic or acute condition. But it's not like days where you had to look at LDH and myoglobins and CPKs and put that together with some subtle EKG changes and a crazy story and try to sell that patient to a cardiologist. I mean, now it's, I mean, even with a good story, if you're not making troponin, it's hard to even get a cardiologist to pay attention to that in the acute phase. They're happy to see them in follow-up, but, you know, if you've got somebody with, you know, a high heart score and uh, you call them up and say, hey, I think this person needs a cath, uh, you know, if you don't have a hard positive outcome from that, um, you know, and so I, I think like you said, you know, you have this kind of OBS industrial complex and it, it's all geared towards doing more tests on patients until you can kind of prove there's this outcome uh, to hand them off. And so uh, that's the thing I think we're going to have to balance is when are we doing too much testing or inappropriate testing and we should just make a decision and that may be, you know, to discharge the patient and have them follow up with the specialist. I don't know. Uh, yeah, I mean, I I, uh, I agree with what you're saying. I think. I mean, there's a there's a there's the, the whole the, the fundamental thing is there's a trade off. <clears throat> um, this whole business with heart and high high sensitivity, sensitivity troponin, I have reservations about its value. I mean, if you had used conventional troponin, and I think now that's not even a question. I mean, everybody uses high sensitivity. We've already right. purchased the, the kits for that. Right. So it's no longer all that interesting to talk about. But, um, you know, it, if you look at the uh, area under the curve for the high-sensitive troponin versus the ordinary troponin, there's not really very much difference. And um, um, the heart score is one of half a dozen different scores that were viewed as possibly useful in predicting uh, who's going to have a cardiac event. Um, it started off way back in the, I think, 70s with, with uh, Goldberg and, and uh, T.H. Lee uh, in their chest pain study group at Harvard. And they, you know, the, their big innovation was they, they brought all these people with chest pain back and checked their enzyme levels the next day. <clears throat> but, and they found out that there were a number, they looked at, I don't know, umpteen potential discriminating factors, including, you know, stuff like, you know, did it get better with nitroglycerin? And of that, large group of things that they looked at, they pulled out uh, used around 10 or so factors that made that, that uh, made a difference. And um, there really hasn't been much of an improvement on that. And no, none of the subsequent studies like ACI Tippy and a few other uh, studies that have really improved, have, have really made an effort to compare themselves to that. Heart among them. Uh, heart um, is just one more sort of a branded Mm -hmm. uh, approach to something that, even with heart, is a poorly has got poor discriminating properties. Uh, if you look at it, I mean, basically, you're not going to get you're not going to squeeze anymore. There's no clinical factors that will enable you to get more juice out of this thing. It, it's going to be a lousy uh, decision point, no matter what we do. Well, well, maybe um, you can share with us, uh, sort of to wrap things up. What do you think is the future of OBS and what are the big challenges? What do we need to do? What do we need to tell people that they need to do when they're starting an OBS unit or want to start an OBS unit? And, um, you know, with kind of your worldview and historical context in mind. Yeah, I think that uh, OBS units are fantastic. They, um, 
sort of the overwhelming number one thing that you should think about in any future if you choose to open up an OBS unit is make it protocol, make it a type one OBS unit. Look that up. Look up the, the paper in Health Affairs by Mike Ross et al. Um, and figure out what a type one OBS unit is and do that. Don't do some other kind of you know, OBS unit as a holding facility kind of thing. I think a lot of people who, who have the, the floor plan for an OBS unit don't want to go to the trouble of setting up the, the real OBS unit with protocol driven, you know, that's run by mid-levels, okay, yeah. where the doctor has relatively little to do. That's the kind of OBS unit that makes sense and that will, I think, survive into the future. It has a role. It's, it improves efficiency. Maintain the statistics and make sure you're not admitting, you know, more than 20% of your patients. Uh, different places may be different. You know, Grady Hospital sees a very different kind of clientele. We practically never see coronary, uh, coronary syndrome at Grady for, <laughs> for, for some reason. But, and that's, that's not just now. Back, in, back when the Goldman Study Group looked at multiple centers, Cincinnati, which was a county hospital, was the one place that had ridiculously low ACS rates. So find out what you're seeing and don't just keep cranking away at stress tests if you're never getting any yield. It may vary from place to place. I think in Ireland, it's very different than it is here. So I'd say, yeah, number, just number one, do a type one OBS unit and do it, do it right. Put some resources into it, it'll help. Okay, all right, that's great. Uh, so, you know, Dr. Pitts, we really appreciate your time. Yeah, thank you so much. And uh, thanks for sharing. And uh, if you're ever in Atlanta and you want to hear some war stories, uh, Dr. Pitts is your man. So uh, <laughs> we can catch you. Where, where's that Irish place you go to? Meehan's? <laughs> is that the, yeah, is that the, the one? Marley. Every the Marley. Every Tuesday. On yeah, Tuesday yeah. night. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> they, got, they got music there, right? Music every Tuesday night. All right, okay. Well, uh, well, we'll see you guys next time. And thanks for listening.